Our reading today is from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 21, to Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the, one, with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, welcome to our service. Um, before I begin, I, I want to make just a quick announcement for our Thanksgiving service that's coming up in uh, three Sundays from now. Uh, as you know, uh, it's our tradition to have people come up and offer a word of thanks. Uh, this year, we want to really encourage everyone uh, to come up and say a word of thanks. And so uh, Pastor Dohi uh, suggested uh, that at least one person from each family uh, prepare a sentence of thanksgiving for that service. And the way we're going to do it is uh, you're going to think of just one thing that you're thankful for, and you're going to phrase it something like this. If God had only given me this, or if it had only been this that God had given to me, that would have been enough. So each sentence will end with, that would have been enough. So if God had just let me keep my job this year, that would have been enough. So it's just, that's it, just, just one sentence. Uh, we want everybody to do it, but at least one person from each family. Obviously, I can't make you, but I'm strongly encouraging all of you to prepare something. So uh, I know sometimes you get nervous coming up and speaking uh, in front of people, so you can just write down just, just one sentence. And, and you've got three weeks now to think about just one thing that you're thankful to God for this entire year. And so uh, just have an opportunity to uh, share that with the congregation uh, and bless everyone. All right? Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you again for this day. Uh, we thank you for just this uh, wonderful time to be together, to praise you, uh, and to be reminded uh, of your goodness, of who you are. And we ask now that in the hearing of your word, uh, you would strengthen us, help us to 
know the truth and to be set free in that truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now the seventh sermon uh, in a series of sermons on the letter that Paul has written to the churches in Galatia. And um, I have to tell you that if you only hear one of the seven sermons, um, you're okay because they're kind of the same. Paul's been just pounding the same theme over and over and over again. And so if it sounds like I've heard this before, or why are we still on this, this is how important this is for Paul. He's been insistent that there is only one true gospel, the one he received by revelation, the one the Galatians all experienced through the Spirit, the one that all of the apostles acknowledged as the one true gospel. The one that was preached to Abraham, the one that was received by faith. God's promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus Christ, through whom and in whom we also now have received the promises as heirs and as the adopted children of God. And this is what Paul has been talking about over and over again. And last week, he worked through some uh, scriptural arguments, and then he made this very personal appeal to them, reminding them of their shared history and how they cared for one another in deep affection. And Paul went so far as to liken himself as, uh, as a mother birthing Christ among the Galatians. In today's reading, Paul, I think a little surprisingly, he reaches back for one more scriptural illustration from the life of Abraham. He has already argued that by faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles belong to the true seed of Abraham. That by faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles are the true sons of God. And now, in our reading today, he's going to finish out by saying that faith in Jesus Christ makes Gentiles the true sons of Sarah and born into freedom. It's almost as though Paul is writing... And after finishing up his emotional appeal last week, and maybe because he likened himself to a mother, it's almost like he's like, oh yeah, one more thing. Let me tell you about these two moms. I think if Paul had a word processor, he might have moved this section up a little closer to the beginning and would have ended chapter four uh, with the emotional appeal. That's the way I would have done it. It's always a little dangerous, of course, to reconstruct what might have happened based on Paul's uh, mindset or anything else like that. But I think the false teachers had used the story of Sarah and Hagar to persuade the Galatians about circumcision and about keeping the law because of the way that Paul introduces this topic. He glosses quickly over this story, doesn't even mention all the names of the players, Because the Galatians know this story. It's a very familiar story to them. The false teachers likely pointed out that Abraham and Isaac were circumcised, and therefore, as Abraham's heirs, they too need to keep this rite of circumcision. Otherwise, they would become like Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, and be in danger of being cast out. Now, Paul could have argued that, you know, Ishmael was also circumcised and so make their argument moot. But he returns to this theme of freedom and of slavery and takes this 
uh, kind of a, a different tact by likening it to an allegory. Now, I want to just remind you that the stories of the Old Testament are a part of our story and a part of the one word of God. I know that there are uh, those who, uh, from the very beginning, have neglected the Old Testament or focused mostly or only on the New Testament, that somehow the Old Testament isn't as important uh, or that it's been uh, superseded by the New Testament. Um, from the very beginning, uh, even in the, the second century, there were followers of a guy named Marcion, for example, who just couldn't reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God that Jesus was talking about. And so they just kind of got rid of the entire Hebrew Bible and said, we're, we're only going to look at the Gospels and the writings of Paul. Uh, and in the 20th century, a very influential theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, said this. He said, the events which meant something for Israel, which were God's word, mean nothing more to us. To the Christian faith, the Old Testament is not in the true sense, God's word. You know, that, that's, just, that's just wrong. <laughs> that's just wrong. As Paul said, we are Abraham's heirs. We are Abraham's heirs. We are connected to this story. These are the stories of our ancestors. And, and you can't, we, we cannot understand Paul. We cannot understand the gospel without these stories. And especially the story of, Paul, uh, of God's promise to Abraham and to his seed. Now, I know it's probably been a while for most of you since you've thought about the story of Abraham and of Sarah and Hagar. And so let me uh, outline that story for you. When Abraham was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was 65, God made him a promise. God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And then a short time later, God promised him, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, Abraham lived till he was 175, and Sarah lived until she was 127. So let's say for argument's sake, biologically speaking, the equivalence of being 75 and 65 might be something like 40 for us, all right? So when God first makes this promise to Abraham and to Sarah, it's a reasonable promise. It's not ridiculous. They are still at an age where having children is a likely possibility. But a few years pass. Abraham and Sarah still have no children, and so Abraham makes a suggestion to God that perhaps his chief servant, Eliezer, can become the heir of the household. But God says no. God says no. It's going to be your own offspring. And God has him look at the stars in the sky, and he says, count them if you can, so shall your offspring be. God promises him descendants beyond number through him. And it says that Abraham believed the Lord and God counted that to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham's righteousness rested entirely on this trust, him believing God's word. And Paul said that this is a gospel that was preached to Abraham. But more years pass. Abraham turns 85 and Sarah 75. It's been 10 years since the original promise and still, there's no child. So Sarah now suggests, hey, maybe we get a surrogate. 
Hagar is her servant, and so let's use her to carry the baby for us. The use of handmaids or servants was a common practice, and so Hagar gets pregnant, and the following year they have a son named Ishmael. Now, as you might imagine, having a son through a surrogate who lives with you permanently uh, created all kinds of chaos. Hagar became arrogant because she had a son, and Sarah grew increasingly jealous. But for 13 years, they lived together and carried on because they thought that Ishmael would be the heir that God had promised them. But not so. More years pass. Abraham turns 100, and Sarah turns 90. And they finally have a child and name him Isaac, meaning laughter. It took 25 years between God's first promise and the fulfillment of that promise. That is a long time to wait for anything. How many of us have waited 25 years for a promise, for anything? It's hard, right? I mean, most of us can't wait an extra second for a web page to load. We get impatient when someone doesn't respond to our texts, you know, within a few minutes. We can't even wait the extra day for Amazon to deliver our goods, right? Now we have to have it the very next day. We can't even wait two days now. Imagine having to wait 25 years. Just waiting. The temptation to do something, to make that happen, to suggest to God, how about this guy? or going to a surrogate, makes sense that they would look for other ways. But the waiting highlights that this is a child of promise. The child is given by faith in fulfillment of God's word. For a woman to have a child at 90, even if she lives to be 127, I mean, it's beyond biology. There would be no doubt, if there would be little doubt, perhaps, but really no doubt that this must be a fulfillment of the promises of God. Uh, this is the same point that Matthew makes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's not about biology. It's about theology. A birth at 90 years old and a virgin birth both tell us that we cannot engineer our future. We cannot produce a savior for ourselves. Human beings cannot save themselves. God must do it. And God has done it in giving Isaac now and later in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. What we can do, all that we can do, is to trust God's word. That's the story. And so we read the story and and we understand that this Isaac is a child of promise and fulfillment of God's word, given in faith, and that it is through this child and his descendants, ultimately in Jesus Christ, in whom and through whom all the promises will be filled, and it is through him that we will be saved. That's the way we understand this story. Paul, however, decides to interpret the story as allegory. An allegory, uh, as you know, I hope, uh, is where each element or a character in a story means or symbolizes something else. So, Whatever you're reading about has a, a deeper meaning beyond the superficial or literal meaning. Uh, for example, 
in maybe one of the, perhaps the most famous allegory, uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The main character's name is Christian. So he's a man and, and he's going on a journey, but his name is Christian. So you know he represents a Christian going on a spiritual uh, journey. Now, Bunyan wrote his story as an allegory, so it's, a, it's correct, if you want to think of it that way, to interpret the character of Christian as representing or symbolic of a Christian. The story of Sarah and Hagar, however, is not written as an allegory. And Paul's allegorical interpretation of that story would be frowned upon today. Like, if I try to do that with the biblical text in seminary, I would have flunked. Like, you can't do that. You can't just, you know, attach meaning like that. But, but in Paul's day, this was normal practice. Everybody did this. And in the early church, a lot of people interpret the scriptures this way. Uh, Origen of Alexandria is probably the most famous of these allegorical interpreters of the Bible. Uh, for example, this is how he interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, the parable itself is already a kind of allegory, right? It's because it's a story. But this is the way Origen explained or allegorized the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said that the man who gets beaten and robbed is Adam, Jerusalem is heaven, and Jericho is the earth. The priest who passes by is the law, The Levite who passes by represents the prophets of the Old Testament. And the Samaritan is Jesus. The donkey is Jesus' physical body, which carries the burden of the wounded man, whose wounds represent sins. The inn that he is taken to is the church. And the Samaritan's promise to return is the promise of Jesus' second coming. Now, we know that is not what Jesus meant. That is not what he was trying to teach with that parable. He was teaching about loving our neighbors. But as just a kind of an illustration, when you read it, when I read that, like, that's not bad, right? (laughs) That that makes sense. It's, It's a reasonable take on a story if it were, you know, just a story. As Christians, we do this uh, regularly as we read the Old Testament. We read the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac as a type, a precursor, a foreshadowing, prefiguring the death of Jesus Christ. We interpret the three days that Jonah was in the belly of the whale as the three days between the cross and the resurrection and so on. I mean, so it's, it's, not, it's something that we do uh, regularly. So in reading the Bible... Christologically, through the lens of Christ, we are reading the Bible in a kind of allegorical way. The, the, the danger is that, you know, when you start applying this to everything, you can just make up stuff. And it, it, you can just make up stuff to defend almost anything. And we neglect or we undermine the literal or plain meaning of the scriptures. Right? So we might understand the parable of the Samaritan as Origen described it. That's not necessarily wrong. But if we forget the fact that the reason Jesus gave that parable or what he wanted for us to get out of it 
was that we ought to love our neighbors to go and do likewise. Like, if we don't keep that in mind, then we've really, uh, we've really lost our way. Allegorical readings can be helpful, but as Martin Luther warned us centuries ago, even in the best of cases, they do not provide solid proofs of theology, but they serve as an ornament for a house that has already been constructed. As an add-on to Paul's overall argument, this allegorical reading is helpful. But it's helpful because he's already built his entire argument on scripture, on reasoning, on personal experiences of the spirit, and of their shared life together. And so Paul says, here are these two women, Sarah and Hagar, and they represent two incompatible systems, two entirely different competing covenants. Flesh and spirit, slave and free, law and liberty, works and grace, earthly and heavenly. Hagar is the law. She's Mount Sinai. She's the earthly Jerusalem. Sarah is faith. She is a heavenly Jerusalem. And so the, the choice for Paul, is, it's very clear. There can be no coexistence between these two covenants. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the distinction Paul is making here is not between Judaism and Christianity. The distinctions he is making is between him and his gospel and those others who are teaching a gospel with the additions of Jewish laws. So this is an intra-church debate, not an inter-religious debate about the truth. For Paul, there is only one gospel, which he's been hammering over and over, and the implications are clear. Those born of the Spirit and freedom are being persecuted by those born of the flesh, just as Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. That Ishmael was persecuted by Isaac may come as a surprise to you, but it was a common interpretation in Paul's day. In, in rabbinic tradition, they, they really came down hard on Ishmael. Uh, not only um, did he persecute Isaac, but he's described as being an idolater, an adulterer, rapist, murderer. I mean, he's just you know, like really, really bad. Um, and so just as Hagar and Ishmael were cast out when Isaac was weaned, so those who continue to insist on keeping the law must also be cast out. Or maybe Paul isn't suggesting that the people be cast out so much as he's saying that the idea that they are presenting, this idea of the gospel plus the law, that has to be cast out because that has no place. That has no place in the church. That has no place in the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he concludes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Stand firm, dig in your heels, refuse to give in, resist with all your strength against this temptation to go back into the bondage of the law. This again, summarizes what Paul has been saying for four chapters. Christ has set us free from sin and the law, and we must not go back to that, but we, we, we are invited, we are encouraged, we are called to live in freedom. Now, freedom for Paul here is not 
our modern notions of freedom. This is not the freedom of the 4th of July. This is not the freedom of uh, individualism and self-determination. This is not the freedom that comes from having choices. The freedom that comes from uh, freedom from social, economic, political oppression. This is not even the freedom that comes from attaining self-control and self-mastery. This freedom, rather, Paul is talking about, is being free, being free from the bondage of the law. It's being free from being under the law, being under a tutor or a guardian, being free from the elements of the world. To be free in Christ, to belong to Christ, to be subject to his lordship, and to be drawn into a community of believers. That's the freedom that Paul is talking about. Freedom is a gift, and we'll see in the next couple of weeks how he's going to apply this, what we are to use our freedom for. But today, I just want you to note that this is a freedom that is rooted entirely in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. As Charles Cusar writes, freedom does not come in human choices. Freedom does not come in human choices, but in a divine choice. Freedom comes in the singular decision that God made for us in Jesus Christ. That's the freedom of the gospel. Not the freedoms that we have, you know, to eat here or there, to go here or there. That's not what he's talking about. It's the freedom that God made freely in Jesus Christ for us. That we might be free from the bondage of the law. Now, of course, Today, we are not arguing about circumcision or dietary laws in our church. That is not our history. That is not what we are struggling with. That is not what we are arguing about. But I know that it is incredibly difficult to live in genuine Christian freedom in community. It is really hard. It's hard because the church, as well as outside the church, People are constantly judging you, right? And you want to get along, you want to be liked, you want to please others. And so we conform or change our behaviors to fit in with the expectations of a particular group, to at least try to minimize some of those judgments against us. You know, um, when I used to work in a a Korean church, um, this was especially hard for me. Because um, people were constantly judging me, but they would never tell me directly. Right? You were supposed to figure it out. In Korean, it's called nunchi. You know what that is, right? Nunchi is the ability to pick up on social cues without people having to tell you explicitly to your face, this is what's going on. Um, if you had it, or if you have it, then you know when you're being judged And so then you kind of modify your behavior or speech or what have you. My problem was, and is, as my wife constantly reminds me, that I don't have nunchi. I don't pick up these social cues. And actually, it's protected me quite a bit. (laughs) When people were insulting me, I thought they were actually complimenting me. So, you know, I had no idea I was being criticized until much later when people had to point out to me, no, that's, they weren't being nice to you. They are saying, change. <laughs> Every church 
does this. Every church has written and mostly unwritten rules about what constitutes good Christian behavior, what constitutes faithful Christian discipleship. Every church defines in its own way what it means to be a church. We want to be faithful to what we believe. We want to honor God. We want to live the best we can for God. And so I think these ideas come from a a good and sincere place. But the problem is that we always, we always define what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ with these add-ons that take on the central role rather than as a preference. There is too many add-ons. And for the church in the regions of, of Galatia, it was circumcision, dietary laws, things like that. You know, I was thinking about this week, like what are the things that, that I've had to kind of struggle with in my life? And at, very, at various points in my own life, in serving and being parts of different churches, um, it's incredible the, the list of things that I was told that I had to have or I had to do. And it gets really confusing because depending on which church you're at, you're told two diametrically opposed things that you have to do or think in order to be an acceptable member of that community, right? Just to give you some examples of what, some of the things that I had to, to be or to think. You must be pro-choice or pro-life. You must be for or against women's ordination. You must be for or against gay marriage and ordination. You must help get out the vote, or you must remain non-political and uninvolved. You must be a Republican or a Democrat. You must be theologically progressive or conservative. You must be a pacifist, or you must support the war and our soldiers. You must have had to have had some sort of mystical experience of being born again, You must be baptized as an adult. You must speak in tongues. You must believe everything in the Apostles' Creed. You must tithe. You must not drink. You must drink. (laughs) You must wear a suit and tie. See, I'm still stuck there. (laughs) You must drive a hybrid. You must not wear Nikes. You cannot celebrate Halloween. You must not play golf on Sundays. You must value education and send your kids to college. You must be vegan. You must read the King James Version of the Bible only. You must be more Korean. You must be less Korean. (laughs) You must, you must, you must, you must. Now, again, people don't necessarily say all these things to your face. They didn't to my face. But you know that's how they were judging me. You have to pick up the social cues. right? People used to joke years ago, you know, you drive into our parking lot at church, and every single car was a Japanese car, right? Like, if you didn't drive a Japanese-made car, like, you didn't belong here because that was the parking lot. And then for a while, everyone's getting minivans. Like, no one's telling you that's what you have to do. I mean, I might have told you to do that, but, right? (laughs) These are the kinds of things. Again, like, they're not that important, but somehow they they take the place of the center. They, They become the ethos of a community, This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be faithful. And the gospel is screaming, no. No. 
That is not the gospel. Now, I'm not saying do whatever you want and just let all chaos break out. And I'm not saying that there are certain positions that are better and probably more Christian. Like, that's not, that's not my point here. The point is that they have this, this power to subtly shift to what is really central to our faith. To make that what defines us as a Christian community. To be known as a church that does that rather than a church that preaches the gospel. That's what unites us. It's the gospel, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. All this other stuff, you know, we can talk about that. We can disagree about it. We can be civil about it. It is for freedom that Christ has died. In his death and resurrection, you have been freed from the bondage of sin, the bondage of the law, the bondage of having to try to live up to the expectations of those around you. Instead of a yoke of slavery, as Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Find your freedom and rest in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reminder once again and maybe it seems repetitive to hear about the gospel again and again. But Lord, I know that I need to hear it again and again. Because it's so easy. It's so easy to get caught up in other things. So God, help us to know that in you, that in Christ, we are free and free indeed. That we are free from the bondage of the law, and we are free to then serve others in love. Help us to believe your word, to trust the gospel and nothing else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.